Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Sean's Wildlife Podcast. I've got some very interesting guests for you today. Um, recently saw them on TV. Before that I uh, came across them on social media and found what they were doing absolutely fascinating. So we're going to speak with Matthew and Karis Watkinson of Beeview Farm and Matthew and Karis are a couple of expats who turned their back on traditional living to go and live off-grid in the middle of nowhere in the Welsh countryside. I think it's probably fair to say guys, is it? It is, yes. Um, yeah, yeah. We're 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 definitely off the beaten track. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for coming on. It's absolutely fascinating what you're doing. I, I, as I said, I think I saw you on Instagram first, and then obviously I watched the recent um, TV show, and I think it's fascinating um, what you're doing. So yeah, thanks for talking to me. No problem. Yeah. So it was um it was Ben Fogel's New Lives in the Wild, um, and it went out about a week before we're chatting now um what has been the kind of overall reaction i think you're probably a bit overwhelmed with the amount of attention it's got have you are you um yeah, yes little it's um, it's been fantastic actually i mean it's been a bit overwhelming but um i to get such a positive response yeah just because there's just so many positive messages on our <laughs> different social media and on the website and it, yeah just to you know we feel we have to kind of read them all properly and respond to any that we need to and we haven't um, read them all yet no well no <laughs> you know looking at you know the world social media world can turn into like these massive negative um pylons um yeah this is a, a really nice pylon yeah. <laughs> everybody <laughs> we've got far too much attention and it's all positive which is really nice i'll go i'll do this again yeah yeah good good um Maybe a bit of a change from a previous experience, which we'll come on to later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. Um, so, guys, tell us like a little bit of your background. Obviously, you're both, uh, you know, studied to be vets and worked as vets like myself. Um, I think we have a, a good bit in common, which we'll come on to later in terms of um, maybe falling out of love with the profession a little bit, certainly in clinical life. But what's your background in terms of kind of this interest in a, a more sustainable or kind of off-grid life? Was it always there or is it something that's come fairly recently? I think um, for me, my choice when going to university would, was between biology and uh, veterinary medicine. And I, I'm not sure whether I made the right choice or not, but um, sort of nature, life, that's, that's always been um, fascinating for, for me. I mean, I've grown up with David Attenborough in the rock pools dens in the wood all that sort of yeah. stuff so um it was always there i think for me i don't know how you feel yeah well i was always really interested in biology as well and nature and animals and yeah you know like you said david attenborough and things like that so um uh yeah but i don't think either of us had you know we'd obviously lived in traditional houses and we'd never really grown anything i mean my we we didn't we weren't growing anything in the garden when i was little it was just a garden that we rode our bikes around like um so yeah, yeah we didn't really have any any skills but it was just the the interest i think yeah i mean it's always yeah. look you see 
pictures of this kind of living um, cabin in the woods with nobody else around. This always looked nice, but mm. I'm not sure it was ever a solid dream mm. like it yeah. eventually became. And when did that point come when you kind of finally decided, actually, do you know what? We want to try this out and we want to like make our lives more simple and um, and remote, I suppose. It's quite a big change. So what was the kind of um, turning point or how long ago was the turning point where you thought, we're going to try this out? It started, really started with the financial crisis in 2008 and a kind of loss right. of, of trust in institutions, governments, supply chains. Uh, I ended up in a rabbit warren on the internet, just trying to understand how does the world work? Um, you know, it, it, we take it for granted. Most people do take it for granted, but how does the world work? I, I ended up in all those... Like money. Yeah, what, what even is money? I, yeah. don't, I don't understand yeah. anything anymore. My, <laughs> whole, the, my world view collapsed a little bit um, in response to that financial crisis and I suddenly started to think, or we suddenly started to think, oh, you know what, I'd, I'd, I'd like to learn a bit more about looking after myself. I'm a specialist. I'm a hyper-specialized human. Um, and that worries me suddenly. I'd like to know how to grow food. I'd like to know how to um, produce my energy and water and all that sort of mm -hmm. stuff. I don't really want to be relying on banks and utility companies and supermarkets i'd like to take a bit of responsibility that for my for ourselves yes yeah so we planted some runner yeah. beans um watched them grow thought it was the best thing ever <laughs> <laughs> it germinated brilliant and then, and then everything followed <laughs> yeah those blasted runner beans huh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I'm a, I'm a grower myself. I have an allotment, so I know how um, kind of addictive it is once you start growing your own food and you're like, oh, I can do this. Yeah. <laughs> I can yeah. self-sufficient. It's but like for printing. Anyone... Sorry. It's, it's, like on, yeah. printing, it's like printing your own money. Growing your own food is, um, is like printing your own money. Um, it feels yeah. great. And it tastes better, right? Absolutely. Oh, God, yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So for anyone listening, it's quite a basic question, but some people might be kind of wondering or kind of have heard it before, but not really researched it. What is off-grid living? Like, what does it actually mean? It well, means... Not, yeah, we're not attached to main grid electricity, um, or mains water. Or mains drainage, um, or mains gas. There's mm. no phone line. Um, everything is either produced here or, I guess coming over mobile phone signal so we've got the yeah. internet but that can all yeah. that can all come in over the um, mobile phone wave so we have no utility connections to uh, beyond this farm it all is coming from here mm. okay and i guess one of the challenges which we'll come on to in a little bit is obviously um you do need permission to do that right if everyone can't just well, legally, I guess, can't just kind of <laughs> yeah. pop sticks to the mountainside yeah. and, and do this, right? There are some um, per permissions you require to do it. Yeah, yeah. I, definitely in the in the UK. <laughs> obviously, I don't. I, God knows, I don't understand other countries. But yeah, in the UK, you can't. You can barely. You can't even build a shed in your own garden. I don't think without <laughs> planning permission in some places. So this definitely yeah. has to require, um, yeah, proper planning permission from your local. Council. Well, there are plenty of people hiding in the woods around Britain. <laughs> 
And um, yeah, I kind of wish I had the guts they do. But well, we don't have the cover. We win. We're not in the, yeah. in, the in the trees, are we? We're, we're not so... in a thicket. And when you've got young kids and stuff, that kind of uh, um, insecurity doesn't appeal so much. So we we did it the proper way. But if anybody wants to go out and start a rebellion when everybody moves back to the woods, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah, I think. I mean, the, the way the last year is going, we're heading towards anarchy. Exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And how much of it, guys, is about um, self-sufficiency? I know for you guys, that's like a big aim. But, um, you know, how self-sufficient can you actually be in today's society in the UK, for example? Yeah, the UK, I think, is difficult just because of, um, you know, where we are, the temperate, the, the, the temp temperament that's not right the climate, the climate and the weather um so yeah. growing grains you you can do it people are starting to grow heritage grains and things like that but that is difficult um and obviously if you want milk or meat um you either buy it or you have to raise your own animals for that so yeah bread yeah. we you know yeah bread and um milk products and things like that yeah we, basically we you can do everything if mm. if you don't stop ever. <laughs> um, I yeah. guess we if you have the land. I and if you have yeah, the land, I guess my at that point where we left, I was like, the world is mad. I want to get out. So we bought this piece of land because we needed somewhere just to call our own. It was peaceful and quiet. And if I could have, uh, the intention perhaps was to disconnect completely, um, but that's not possible that's not possible unless you're only going to do a few things you know you can't do or you everything. have a community or you I mean, do it just as part the two of, of us yeah. yeah collecting eggs and then if we had something we had to milk and we had things that were you know like sheep or cows in calf or in lamb and it's just there's yeah it's just more and more adding to the jobs you'd have to do mm. every day um so we've so, decided yeah. not not to have a milking animal um and yeah yeah because you could almost like stress yourself out just as much but in a different way mm, yeah. yeah yeah exactly i think small yeah. small community would be a better model than sort of isolated total mm. self-sufficiency yeah. yeah yeah and um you talked about kind of you went you bought this plot of land like how big is it um how was it when you started what does it look like now can you just describe to us what what you bought and then and then how you turned it into what it is now yeah well we had a few basic requirements so um we were looking for for land we decided right we're going to buy land i wanted it to feel private to have its own water source and to have a sense of space and freedom um so we started looking on on the coast i mean if it came with a sea view there's nothing more peaceful and um, spacious than looking at the sea. So um, we, we found this little plot. It's th It was three acres at that point, just um, agricultural grass. The hedgerows were lush. They were full of full of um, life, but the, the pasture itself was nothing. Um, no. And so it felt right, so we bought it. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Um... 
But now, well, you know, it had, um, it, yeah, it's just, it had been really overgrazed. So the grass was, you know, just really tiny and all the, um, uh, the gateways were all really muddy and things like that. And yeah, there wasn't much going on. But now, you know, we've let the grass grow and trying to get it back into wildflower meadows. And so it's just really green and we've planted a lot more trees. And so we're seeing, um, you know, birds, especially, you know, every year we see a new type of little bird um, fly around and, you know, we've got um, lizards and snakes and, yeah, it's, it's just becoming a really, really we, lovely place to be. We had a vision and mm. um, when we bought it, we weren't seeing what it was at that point. We were seeing what it would be in the future with, you know, lots of trees and lots of wildflowers yeah. and lots of uh, different habitats and um, wildlife coming back, all that sort of stuff. And once you've sort of seen that vision of a place, it's it drives the process from that point. You can see what you yeah, want to yeah. do with it, and you can see how it might look. Even if nobody else believes you, nobody else can see it, that it gave its own energy back to us and sort of, I don't know, almost the land took over. Mm. It became part of the yeah. decision-making process. Mm. It was clear it didn't want to be bare agricultural grass. I mean, it sounds silly to attribute... <laughs> intention to a plot of land but um i guess any plot of land if you shut the gate on a field and come back 20 years later it's going to look very different and that's we just wanted yeah. to get involved in that process we'll steer it in a direction where it becomes a kind of edible food forest for us as well and maybe we'll get to live here yeah i was going to say i think there is uh, definitely kind of intention you know nature's intention to do what what it, it wants to do with the land so it sounds quite a lot like the philosophy of rewilding so you're allowing the land around you to rewild whilst also putting in features or or um kind of doing activities that will also support you and your family yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i mean i'm i was always struck by that saying like before we started growing food food just grew <laughs> and I kind of, yeah. that sort of makes sense and it it doesn't have to be well organized monocultures with um lots of bare soil and regular applications of horrible chemicals and things like that there are you can steer it in that sort of permaculture way um so, so there's lots of mutually beneficial plants growing next to each other all producing useful stuff and all creating different habitats and environments for lots of other stuff to come in. So it made a lot of sense to us and we we, we went for it. Yeah. So how long have you been there now? Uh, we're approaching 10 years since we bought it. Um, it was... Yeah. yeah, we started planting trees, you know, straight away and things like that, didn't we? Yeah, get the firewood coppice in, mm. um, get the fruit trees in as soon as we we could um and then it was quite slow to begin with once we moved on to site in 2016 you get even more of a feel for the land and we i mean we'd, we we don't have any gardening gardening experience we're just experimenting the whole time and putting plants in and if it's not there the next year it didn't work <laughs> but if it is yeah <laughs> and finding our way finding what works up here just like that by trial and error much like nature would do if it was taking it back yeah yeah and obviously there was the um requirement that you needed to live there so you had to build 
you know, a dwelling of, of some kind on the land. Um, tell us about that. What did you, how did you solve that problem? Well, as soon as we got permission, so we, we, we have um, permission for a straw bale house on the site that was going to be dug into the hillside. Um, and as soon as we got permission for that, you're then granted permission to stay there in temporary accommodation to build the house. So, you know, once you've got permission to live on your little plot of land, your little um, oasis, it, as soon as we could, we'd just make a plan. Whatever it will be, we've got to get up there. I don't want to live in rented accommodation now when I could be living there. Well, it just gets rid of the bill, you know, rent yeah, and, the bills, and any electricity bills or, you know, whatever you're paying in, your, in our little cottage. You just got rid of bills the minute we got up here. Yeah. So-, so we looked at... Yeah. We looked at yurts, we looked at um, benders and uh, all sorts of things. And the, the simplest and easiest thing to do seemed to be an old horse lorry. You could drive it into place, drop the back, put a window in the, uh, in the rear part, and you've got a kind of big room to work with. So we managed somehow, and I still don't quite know how, to drag this <laughs> horse lorry up the <laughs> <laughs> and we did break the tow bar on the truck. Broke so, the tow yeah. bar, yeah. Um, <laughs> nearly got it stuck, nearly went through the neighbor's wall, all sorts of shenanigans. But we got it up here, uh, leveled it, and suddenly we've got this sort of base up here, put a fire in it, um, and that was our home. Yeah, and good to go. And then it's grown from there as this kind of collection of scrap vehicles that have, we've cobbled together and have kind of made a house out of it <laughs> and did you have any building experience before you did this or no no no, no. building no plumbing I made, no a, I made a cupboard once you made- <laughs> 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 very um, good I've made a, an allotment shed out of pallets so I'm like I could do this yeah it's right. good. <laughs> yeah, yeah anybody can do it I mean um I, I think a builder, if he walked around, it would be absolutely horrified, but we're happy. Well, we've struck the straight lines, you know, like square or rectangle. You know, we're, yeah, we're not doing all the curved walls and the reciprocal, you oh, know, well, timber, roundwood timber framing and all that sort yeah, of stuff. Yeah, you know, no. as, as lush as they look, we, um, we kind of thought that might be pushing it. Mm. So you're not going to be on Grand Designs next, no? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> as much as we'd like to be, I don't think we'd manage that, no. <laughs> no. Good. Well, it's got its unique charm. Um, it doesn't need to be grand, does it? Not at all. So tell us about the, the practicalities. You know, obviously now you've got, you know, you've got your land, you've put in your trees, you've started growing towards, you know, being sustainable on the land and things. But obviously there's practicalities like you said, you know, water and waste disposal and um, energy and, and heat and things like that. What were what were those challenges and how did you um, sort them out? Uh, well, the heart of any house like this is is a fire. Um, and that it was that's kind of one of the reasons for doing it all is to get back to these very simple um heartwarming technologies you know there's nothing really difficult about lighting a fire mm-hmm. so let's get a wood burning stove in um we we did then plumb it in so we had a back boiler on the stove hot water tank to the outside of the horse lorry <laughs> that was the only place we could put it and once you've got heat and hot water yeah running hot water you're yeah. you're comfortable you know i think a lot of people end up yeah. with 
end up doing this, rushing on there, and they haven't got those systems sorted, and the initial excitement can quickly wear off if you can't have a cold shower for a, a few a weeks. Oh, sorry, a hot shower. <laughs> they can have plenty of cold showers. Cold showers. So um, if you haven't got, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, as good as it's meant to be for you. Yeah, I think. yeah. You could have a cold mud bath as well. Yeah, nice too short for that. So. <laughs> but you can get quickly demoralised without a, that sort of essential heat. <laughs> so yeah. we we'd install those before we moved up. We'd also got the solar panels um, uh, ready and a an, um, battery system in the cab of the horse lorry. Which we did actually get a, a local yeah, solar electrician to put that in because we don't want to fiddle around with electrics. That's was pushing it a little bit. Yeah. So, yeah, he put that in, so that was brilliant. Um, so we had that basic hmm. in- infrastructure. On that, um, the kitchen was a plank of wood. Uh, the bath was a half a barrel. For, for Elsa, <laughs> it still is actually. Um, we were we were just doing whatever we could for everything else, but because we had heat and hot water, you can you you can cope. Yeah, then we did all right, and then yeah, part our our planning stipulates we have to you know deal with our own waste water, so we've got a reed bed system um, that okay. our um, you know shower and washing up water and stuff from the sink um, goes to. Um, so that goes through that, and then we've got a compost toilet. Um, so we we don't have um, you know any of that kind of like flushing water to deal with. We yeah we've got a compost toilet, and um, and that's been brilliant as well actually. Yeah, I mean yeah. it's all recycling nutrients, isn't mm. it? <laughs> um, yeah. it? We're very squeamish about, and that's probably one of the most the biggest challenges for people is what about a toilet? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but. Mm. You've got to, if you're going to take responsibility for it, you've got to sort of reevaluate that relationship. And we are now composting everything, and it all goes around the the trees, the the coppice, firewood coppice trees. It's all sorted here. So all that infrastructure that everybody else has for whisking away um, toilet waste. We don't need any of it. We just compost it, and it becomes a resource for the for here. Mm. Yeah, and eventually feed down the line, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, very good. And um, one of the things that I found very impressive on the, uh, the TV show was Biff. Tell us about Biff. Biff. <laughs> <laughs> well, in as part of the ongoing sort of internet research, you, this was another rabbit warren i ended up in and discovered the discovered the concept of biodigestion which is um right using anaerobic bacteria and microorganisms to digest um organic material and turn it into methane and if you can capture that methane you then have cooking gas so uh, as soon i mean it sounds like alchemy it's like brilliant it's like magic isn't it yeah well, no. so what i can just yeah. take my fruit peelings and make my cooking gas. <laughs> i'm gonna have to have a go yeah the trouble yeah. the trouble is it's not a kind of very well tested technology you know diy technology in britain um because it's a very simple system but it's designed for places like africa and asia where they do it quite a lot 
Mm. They're, they're running out of um, wood, aren't they? Yeah. Wood, wood to burn. And so they're, um, you know, but they've all got, you know, lots of animals and then any food waste and they're putting it in their biodigesters and they're all getting cooking gas, so aren't they? So they're producing clean cooking gas yeah. from waste in, in those countries. But, but it's much warmer over there. And so, yeah, yeah. they will work much better, I think, quicker. I often think looking at third world solutions, um, that a lot of this stuff is, it could be used here. We we don't. It's less complicated. Yeah, I love kind of low tech solutions like that, and this is very low tech. It's just a big tank full of cow manure, um, no moving parts. It's not going to break. Once the bugs get going, they'll turn food waste into methane, and it's just passively comes through to the kitchen. I was going to say it's just piped into the kitchen, is it? Yeah, you just so yeah. you have the biodigester unit, and then you have a gas silo unit, which is um, one tank upended in another tank and the the top tank as the gas is produced that rises up out of the water in the bottom tank um to create one of those you know similar to those big gas silos in in london and other cities um mm. and with a bit of weight on top of it that keeps it pressurized and then you can hook it up to a hob in the kitchen and away you go mm, so we can physically see you know how high that's rising and we can see how much how much gas we've got um and then it's only pressurized by what's it got like a tractor tire and some bricks on it something yeah. hasn't it yeah so it's not you know at, it's not gonna like it's not a bomb it's not gonna explode <laughs> yeah because <laughs> lots of people worry about that they're like what you've got a whole big you know <laughs> load of methane next to your house it's not you know it doesn't burn as well as propane and butane so and and it's not massively pressurized yeah so, it's low pressure yeah we're, we're not that said explode. when it first started to lift up after we'd built it i was terrified of lighting it <laughs> yeah, we i was going to say we worried the uh yeah, the flame oh, yeah. Back to the tank or something yeah. yeah am i gonna like detonate the mountain and <laughs> <laughs> so it, it took me a while to you know light that light that match and put the gas to it and then it didn't light because we hadn't actually pressurized it, so no gas came out. We hadn't put anything on it, had we? So nothing happened. Okay. <laughs> Look, what, what, I don't care. Whatever happened at one point, the gas lit, oh, it and did, that yeah. was a eureka <laughs> moment. You know, other yeah. other people have done it, but we we made that. We created a solution that's turning waste into fuel, and it felt fantastic. And every time we light that gas, to this day, that's two and a half years ago it feels fantastic we've made energy yeah it is incredible i think um part of the problem with society now is people want things clean convenient and quick don't they they so, do yeah yeah and this is about um, fossil fuel consumption and yeah and for us this is about yeah. getting back to really simple technologies mm. it's you know what it is it's an extension of an interest in biology. Like this whole place for me feels like a big biology experiment where we're trying to see how much work biology can do for us, um, how we can incorporate it into our lives, and it will do so much. Like there's bacteria and all sorts in the compost toilets. They're sorting out our waste. There's <clears throat> bacteria in the biodigester that are producing fuel. There's bacteria in the reed bed system and all the reeds and um, the yellow iris uh, that are purifying water. And then we've got 
and the habitat that's providing for wildlife as well. Every, right? single, every single one of those is a wildlife habitat. And then we're growing all these different plants for the for the food and the um, trees for food and firewood. If we can, like nat- nature, biology can do so much, much work for us if we just incorporate it into the system. Yeah, yeah. Now, this is probably a, a difficult question, but um, what what does a typical day look like, or is there a typical day? Well, we can't get Billy to get oh, up any later God. than seven o'clock. Yeah. It always starts at seven o'clock. I mean, right. it, it could be worse, but <laughs> or it could be a lot worse. It could be a lot worse. Yeah, <laughs> but seven o'clock is the start, and actually, I I then pop out at the same time and feed um, chickens and ducks at that point, um, and then. Normally, there'd be school run, getting Elsa ready for school, um, all that sort of stuff. And then it's prepping eggs. Sorting the eggs from the day before, yeah, yeah, getting them in boxes, sorting out what orders we've got that day, um, sorting all them out. So you're selling selling eggs, yeah? Yeah, Yeah, the chicken and the duck eggs are sold through a local shop and um, in one of the local cafes and, and well, local B&B when when they're running. uh yeah so just sorting all those things out and then and you you know collecting the eggs there's always things to do so we're we're trying to produce as much of the resources that chickens use here on the farm as well so we're embracing things like bracken rush grass um nettles whatever we can use for bedding rather than having to go out and buy straw there's lots of scything so there's lots yeah there's scything bedding or bracken or whatever it happens to be um and then there's always projects going on i mean i wouldn't say our day is taken up with chores there's a few chores to do Mm. but i don't want to spend my whole day doing chores we want to streamline that system so that we can build biodigesters and um yeah and more uh, experimenting yeah Yeah. all all that (laughs) kind of funky stuff that we that's that's great that gives you those little highs of success Trying to get this water yeah. heater to work and things yeah, like that, isn't it? Yeah, damn water heater. I yeah. can't get it to work. But <laughs> <laughs> I will. And then Lots I of tips, will... though. Lots of people have sent us tips, yeah. so that was really nice. Yeah. And then that will be another um, eureka moment. If we can get hot water out of a compost heap, I'll be, that'll be brilliant. Might be tough in Wales. Yeah. <laughs> very good, very good. Um, so would you say that you, you, know, you have more free time and family time now? uh yes oh god yes and um yeah all this experimenting yeah we're we're here all the time that has its drawbacks i guess nobody gets any space from the kid yeah (laughs) but we have all this time to experiment so we are cash poor but time rich and that is that's a huge change it Mm. just gives you the opportunity to do all this stuff to create I guess that's what we're doing a lot is is creating stuff. Um, the whole house is a, an exercise in imagination and creation um, and problem solving just with the things that you can find at the time. And it's, you know, it might not be everybody's idea of a, <laughs> a dream home, but it's mine. It's ours. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's definitely mine. <laughs> <laughs> You went along for the ride, Paris, yeah? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you don't like it, you can build your own one. <laughs> <laughs> 
Thanks for going off the other side of the hill now. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some luxury dicks. <laughs> Very good. So guys, what, um, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about the, you know, legal implications and the fact that like, it's not easy just to, you know, pack up sticks and go and do this somewhere. Mm-hmm. So what, um, what was in place? What did you have to do to, to be able to try this lifestyle out? So we've got permission to do this under um, something called the One Planet Development Policy, which is unique to Wales, unfortunately. Yeah, that's such a shame. Yeah, right. it's a massive um, achievement that it exists anywhere, mm. but it's only in Wales. Wales has kind of committed itself to the um, welfare of future generations and as part of that created this policy that allowed people to go back to the land to, to build outside of normal planning areas if they can commit to certain targets um which are like living as if we only had one if we only have one planet which we do funnily enough yeah but at the minute yeah. you know everyone's living as it you know as if we have the resources from yeah something crazy like five or ten planets some of the countries um, are on really? um yeah and so you know I don't know where all these resources are coming from, but yeah, no, everybody's going to have to live live like this eventually. Yeah, you are. Yeah. But um, we've decided to get on with it now. Okay, um, it's stringent. You've got to produce a, a pretty detailed management plan that outlines how you're going to meet all the targets involved because you have to um, produce sixty five percent of your own food by value by okay. by year five. Um, you've got to produce all your own electricity. Um, water, firewood from the site. Yeah, deal um, with your own waste. Deal with your own waste. Yeah, yeah. zero um, carbon building. And also make a a, li- a certain amount of money from the site each year, which is where the chickens come in. So it's pretty, it's pretty onerous mm. to do it. But you you get to avoid all the traps that might that. I'm, I'm just really glad we did avoid. So we could buy, this is a cheap house. We bought some cheap agricultural land, built a house out of junk yeah. on it, and avoided the need to have a mortgage, which then trapped you into a career. Because um, we didn't have a mortgage. I think that's no. the big starting point, though, is that we didn't have a mortgage. We were renting. Um, mm. I think, you know, I don't know, if you do have a mortgage... If you have bought a house and you do have a mortgage, but you trying to get out, then is much more complicated, isn't You've it? You've become, yeah. I, I do as a kind of uh, alternative description, but there is debt slavery, isn't it? Once you are in debt and your lifestyle is based upon that debt, you, you don't have many choices left. So we were at the point, right, are we going to buy a house? Mm, we had some savings. We'd saved up a deposit, and at the last minute, no, we'll have some muddy oh, Welsh fields instead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, no looking back. <laughs> and no looking back. And uh, that's what we needed to do at that point in time. It was a hell of a risk, but it has paid off. Not that, I mean, it only wouldn't have paid off if we were going to give up. And I don't think we were ever going to give up. There is a or way not to hit the targets because if we don't yeah, well, hit yeah. our targets, from moving on, you've got five years to hit all the targets. And if you don't, re- your planning permission is then removed and you don't have planning to live on your land anymore or have any buildings or infrastructure and you have to remove it all. 
Um, wow. There's okay. no one. There, there's there's lots of people that have got planning before us, and and so no one has hit year five and not hit their targets yet. Um, so uh, and then there's a few people after us. So hopefully no one's. That's not going to happen to anybody. Um, but, well, it's a, a hell of a motivation, isn't it? When your whole how your house and life, yeah. life is on the line. Oh, yeah. Um, but so that's you're, okay. You're there for you with that, right? So you're coming up to that point in time. Yeah, we're just, yes, we're just coming to the end of year where four. Are we? Year think, four. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's complicated. Yeah, yeah, year four. Um, yeah, and but I think I think you know we're we're hitting our targets. So we've we'll we've heard fine. from we've heard from others who have done this previously that um, year four for them is when the, the place suddenly starts to carry them a bit more. For yeah, for four years, feels like the, all the effort is is coming from you. You're putting everything and into it, and, stuff and, and helping know, things, and yeah. isn't quite getting there. And suddenly, it reaches a point where it starts to lift you up. It starts to give back, and that was this year. Yeah, yeah. Suddenly, it felt like there was food everywhere. Yeah. Oh God, yeah. yeah. And life everywhere, and um, I wasn't as worried about how I was going to, how we were going to meet the targets as mm. we were before. Suddenly it's like, actually we can do this yeah. because at the start we don't know anything. <laughs> yeah. It's a deep learning curve, isn't it? And I it's, suppose yeah. five years is there to allow that to happen so that you've got that time to like invest in it and for it to start establishing and then paying you back. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But um, that's five years. That's five, that's five growing seasons, isn't it? And mm. for, well, for us that we don't haven't really ever grown anything, that was major. I mean, yeah. other people that have got planning permission already like know how to grow stuff, so that you know that's nice. But um, yeah, so pretty steep learning curve, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it is. But um, I I like that. I'm. It makes me feel alive. Um, you know, we've had to learn plumbing and how to put a wood burning stove in, and um. All sorts of skills, but that feels great. If, if and conquering every single challenge, you know, if a plumber came here and we said put a hot water system in, he'd do it in five minutes. And he wouldn't wouldn't think twice about it. But for us, we built a hot water system. Yeah, it's quite major. <laughs> yeah. They didn't leak when we could put all the water through it. Well, it did a bit. Well, but... in, some, in some bits, bash it back in a bit. Minor detail. Yeah, yeah. that's um. That's a triumph. It's a small win, and and it's nice to have that that sort of satisfaction from the process. Mm. So th that's what comes, I guess, from self reliance is and becoming a jack of all trades. Is you get all these little wins. You don't have to pay someone who doesn't really care. You can you can do it yourself, and then you know how to fix it. You don't have to call a boiler yeah. engineer or. Because you understand it yourself. Because you, yeah, you've you built know it. Where you know what, what's going on. What you did and yeah, yeah. And, and, it, can... and that's, it's liberating. It feels great to be mm. in control of all those little details of your life. I mean, it's annoying. And I think. So I was yeah, going to say it's annoying. It's annoying when the pipe freezes and I've got to go and sort that out and I can't shout at someone down the phone. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. I know we know what to do now. We know mm. we know how to look after ourselves a lot more than we did before we started. 
Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, for me, those are the kind of things that I get stressed about and just want to like get someone in to fix because I don't have the brain space or the, or the time. stress um, or the time, you know, and it's like, it's too stressful for me to be able to figure this out and do it and learn. Yeah. Um, so it just becomes kind of someone else's problem with a bill attached. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whereas we've got the time yeah. to fix these problems and we know how to fix them and it, and that feels really good. Yeah, you're making me quite jealous now, guys. <laughs> oh, there's there's some there's shouting and cursing. Quite, if, if, yeah. <laughs> there's water spraying everywhere. Say, oh, yeah. yeah. I was going to say, had there been points, you know, low points where you thought, what the hell are we doing? Like, uh, yes. <laughs> well, yeah. When the roof blew off, that uh, that was when not um, so much. What the hell are we doing? More, what the hell have I done? <laughs> um we the roof is just a pond liner over the top weighed down by um by bits of sapwood well at that point not enough not enough and uh we're exposed up here so when the the wind hits it right and it finds a little chink under that pond liner it whipped the whole lot lot off i went up there to check it oh god yeah, I went yeah. up there to check the solar panels and realised the roof wasn't on it. <laughs> <laughs> so we were up there in like 60 or 70 mile an hour gales trying to get it trying back Trying to down. pull the roof back on. Um, but then we just, I don't know, I've, I, even with, with whatever, I've, I've never actually been like, right, that's it, like, right, pack up, let's go and, no. you know, stay, stay somewhere else, you know, that's it now, one um yeah i haven't we we just it's annoying and you kind of yeah shout and get fed up but you then you just do it like i don't i suppose it's boosted your resilience massively to you know to problem solve and to like deal with those little things that come along when they do right yeah i guess so yeah 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 it's a way of life now mm-hmm. when we you, yeah. it changes you from dependency to um relying on yourself even more and now there's no problem where I think, well, unless it's electricity. I don't like the electricity, but um, m- there's no problem where I think I wish I could call someone else. That is just all right. How let's work what it out. What are we going to do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in terms of long term, you think you know you'll hit your target. You'll be approved. You're going to be there. Do you think forever? You mentioned your kids like go to normal school and, and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah, think um, local school. So, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, that would be nice. Have to see what, what they, what they want to do with their lives, and I, I don't know. <laughs> see what we're doing. I mean, we are up, up a, you know, we're up a hill. We're up a track. Um, I don't know. In you know, twenty, thirty years, whether we'll think, oh, this is a bit silly now. I, um, it feels I right for now. Yeah, yeah. Um, for raising kids, um, we're not too far away from the school. Uh, it does. It just feels like the right solution for now. When when the kids are older, when they leave home or they want to take over, who knows? We, um, it it is home right now, but oh yeah, yeah. So who knows? I I don't. I think yeah. perhaps I'd like to go somewhere even wilder. There's still a bit too too many people. <laughs> yeah, you did you did want to begin with. You want where do you want to go to Iceland or to Mull, <laughs> the Isle of Mull, and 
I d- yeah, I was a bit. Yeah, oh, we're we're, we're still in the fun. middle of the sort of politics here, and it, I'd I'd like to get away from that. And, and you like the cold? I don't know if that was going to be a bit too cold <laughs> for me. I'd like some big yeah. animals, like some real wildlife. Well, not, you know, tiny birds. There's nothing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing really that challenging here, is there? I want. You want to get up to the highlands and get those wolves and lynx back and things like that. Please. I want wolves, and yeah. lynxes, and bears and. Um. Yeah, I, I want not just pesky crows. Yeah, I mean we've kind of you know we wipe it all out, don't we? It's a bit inconvenient for farming, so let's kill it all. Yeah, yeah. There was that a bit that might have been a bit too controversial. <laughs> no, it's fine. We talk, I talk about this on um, lots of podcast episodes, but um, okay, I think we could go off on a, a whole other tangent. Yeah, there we are. There. Yeah, yeah, there yeah, we are. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so going going on a slightly different tangent, then talk to me about um, kind of going backwards and think that kind of time where you thought we need to quit this rat race. There's you know something inherently. I guess, at fault with like how we live our modern lives and this kind of debt trap and things that we get into. Um, you guys are vets. Uh, you're vets mm. with a fairly similar story to me that kind of, I I think it's fair to say, got a bit disillusioned with maybe the veterinary profession and certainly like clinical veterinary life. I left after six years of graduating. Um, what was each of your stories in terms of deciding that, you know, long-term being in, in veterinary clinic um practice wasn't for you um do you want well, to start I, yeah <laughs> yeah god um difficult one sorry it's a biggie. no it's all right yeah um uh yeah i graduated and went into small animal practice um and it, you you just i don't know you just straight into it i think that i'd spent a few years just not being able to actually really pinpoint what was going on um and how stressed i was with the whole thing um yeah. yeah, but it immediately got like eczema. Was straight on to eczema and the, and migraines and things like that. But yeah, just the um, uh, you know, I just yeah found the whole thing quite stressful. Really busy. Um, put a lot of stress on myself as well. I'm very you know self critical and want to do everything right. Um, but I think another big part for me is that. I, I do like working as a team and discussing things and you don't really do that. You know, you, there is a team of you working in the veterinary practice, but you're all, you've all got your own consults and appointments and blood tests and phone calls and, you know, this and that to do. Um, and sometimes I just like to bounce an idea off someone else and be like, you know, oh, this result came back, you know, what do you think? Um, and you don't really get the chance to do that. And then if you do, I'm the type of person to think, well, do that, you know, am I the only person asking questions? And so does everyone think that I yeah. don't really know anything because I like keep asking little questions. So, um, it's a big change from well, college yeah, yeah, because to... you do do everything as a team in rotations yeah. in your last, in your final year, there's a little group of you, you know, you're all split up into little groups and you, and you go around each. Thing, you know equine medicine and surgery and small animal medicine and surgery you know and you're a little team and you all yeah work together and then you're off in your own and it's like, together, right? yeah and then um you know first job okay there you are often there's your consult room often do consults and you're like oh my god but um yeah 
Yeah, and I think it's well, isolating, isn't it? Especially it is. When yeah, mm. even when you're in, you know, a, a building. My, you know, my first job, I was in a big hospital. There was like eight vets. Um, there's a lot of us in there, but you're still completely on your own. Um, yeah, I've I graduating for me is one of the worst things that ever happened to me. I was so happy at college. <laughs> um, mm. I had my support network, and then the bit we'd all been chasing for five years comes around and everybody goes their own, their own way. And I ended up just feeling really isolated. Um, yeah. Re really lonely. You're doing large animal, aren't you? Doing large animal where you don't even have the, the colleague. It's sink or swim, isn't it? Really? You, you, yeah. You can call yeah, yeah, you can call the partner, but you know it's going to mess up their day. Um, mm. And you don't want to do it too often. But, yeah, oh God, it just fills me with kind of horror to to think about these um, myself at that point going out. You know, learning, the real learning starts after graduation, but you still got to go yeah, and get through. you have through. to make those for yourself, don't you? Yeah. Um, and you've got to learn how to deal with each different situation it's mm. uh, it's, it's a brutal baptism um and i didn't really like it and all the time you're pretending or you well i was i was pretending it, it's great you know you've worked for <laughs> five plus years to get to that point and you've been dreaming of it and um you've wanted to get there and then it's horrific. <laughs> but do you feel like I always kind of explain that, you know, you haven't just worked for five years. Like I did an undergrad degree in animal science, which was another three year degree. Mm. But you're also working from the time you're a teenager, getting yeah. work experience and putting everything you are into like, I need to become a vet. I need to become a vet. Yeah, and then to get exactly. out and realize you don't like it is quite disconcerting, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. You know, you're trying to get work experience and even if it's just in the kennels and then you try, you know, you, you, you know, lots of people work at weekend, you know, they do like a Saturday morning in the local vets and things like that. And they become a regular like work experience um, person. And then, you know, I even had the whole chat with the teachers, like, what are you going to do for um, uh, GCSE? Is it double science, triple science, all of that? What's going to be best to get into uni to be a vet? And yeah, you, it's everything is geared is geared towards that and it is a like a yeah massive thing that you get out and you think oh my god i i'm not i'm not dealing with this i'm not coping with this and yeah you've spent yeah that must be like oh i don't even know like 10 12 years of your life to preparing for it yeah, yeah. to get to a point and what is that point that kind of graduation is just well, i don't say just i don't want i don't want to get too controversial but it's this sort of cultural prestige of having got that far, isn't it? And everybody mm. loves you for what you're doing. And to then find yourself hating that situation puts you in a horrific conflict. You're pretending to be the person who loves where they've got to because everybody else loves where you've got to. But actually you're struggling that. inside mm. and you don't know who to turn to because you don't want to admit to being the one who hates what they're doing. 
Um, and it's also difficult to explain to people who aren't in that situation how stressful the job is, right? Did you find yeah. that? Oh, yeah, oh, definitely. Still find that. It's uh, like, what? Why? Yeah. You know, and they just think it's great. And trying to explain that uh, as a small animal vet that you've got 10 or 15 minutes to, you know, get information from the owner and examine the animal well without it possibly trying to maim you and and then make a you know a diagnostic plan and treatment plan and talk about the money and then you have to change it because they don't want to pay for it you know or pay for anything everything or can't afford it and you know you've only got 10 minutes to do that whole thing for each animal and you know some things are you know very simple and then other things are much more complicated but you've still got the same amount of time to do it all in um and it is, yeah. so it's an immense amount of pressure. And again, to know everything, you know, general practice, people will come in with anything wrong with their animal and, and you have to recognise what's going on. Um, and so, lots yeah, of different you know, species really, as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. They're not, not all the same, you know. Um, and so, um, yeah, you know, there's that classic, like, they're not all the same. A cat isn't just a little dog and things like that. And, and also what so many people say is, oh, they, oh, they can't talk to you, can they? And you're like, well, no. So I have to go off your information. And then especially if you can't examine the animal properly for whatever reason, it, it just complicates everything even further. Yeah, yeah. And I was going to say, obviously, this is a fact that would be very well known to us, but I often shock people when I talk about it. They they actually physically can't believe that veterinary has a very poor mental health kind of record. Um, mm. And it also has the suicide rate four times higher than the general population, twice as high as doctors and dentists. Um, and I think there's a kind of a, a perfect storm element, you know, lots of different factors feed into that. Oh, loads, can you guys talk yeah. about like some of those factors, what they might be? Oh, well, yeah, yeah I, mean, I, think, I think it's just loads. It, I don't. I'd say I think this disconnect, this conflict between what you hope, what you expect, and what you get, um, mm. that sort of uh, conflict. Well, if I can, from my own experience, that was tough. That was mm, hard, yeah. and also then covering it up pretending putting a smile on it yes yeah, so, so i don't think it's a, perhaps appreciated as much that it is a customer facing profession you know first opinion practice yeah. is customer facing now some people are brilliant at that um i'm i'm not so if you're having a, a horrific day you don't want to be carving a cow or a lambing a sheep at two in the morning <laughs> That's really difficult. The next day at six. Yeah, yeah. that's really difficult. It's a, it's a hell of a thing to pretend you do love it um, and you do want to be there, but you're customer facing. So you are presenting the professional face the whole time. And oh, yeah, I hated it. You're never good at paying a face. No, <laughs> if I'm in a bad mood, I'm in a bad mood. <laughs> but, the, but then there's this kind of empathy with the client, isn't it? You don't, yeah. want, you don't want to upset them either. <laughs> it's a it's turmoil yeah, storm and i think also i don't know a big part of it at the minute is is obviously so many people apply to go to universities so the universities can just skim the very top people off and um you know 
a lot of them are, are such high achievers and so critical. Yeah. I, I did maybe those people are not actually best suited for you know f yeah for that for the type of job, yeah, for the, job yeah for the general clinical practice um but there's a there's a lot i mean yeah the, it, it's just a whole it's just all a kind of perfect storm really. yeah we there's a big culture expectation that every vet is a big sort of infinite fountain of compassion <laughs> and uh that's a huge amount of pressure like um we're yeah, not compassion you fatigue to, is a big thing. yeah there's compassion fatigue and sometimes you've got to be yourself but you're a vet that's yeah, yeah. i know it, myself yeah you, that's After your life six years of it, it's just like stressed out and um it's very hard to maintain that enthusiasm it's hard to maintain on a bad day that like smiley face for the next client that comes yeah. through your door and there's 20 other clients to see behind them and you're feeling knackered and you're feeling worn mm. out and you're feeling like yeah. you know dare I say, honestly, I really don't care about the most minor little problem that's in front of me, maybe, that, well, you know, you lose yeah, that, you lose that exactly. passion, don't you? There, yeah, there's definitely you... that, but there's also, and this is where I was really beginning to get into trouble, is why is this even a problem? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I'm beginning to ask sort of deeper questions like, um, why have you put this Belgian blue bull on a heifer on a heifer and i'm now here at four in the morning like i want to be in bed but i've got to pretend that i'm happy and here to help and then i'll go back and get an hour sleep and have to get up and pretend to everybody else that i'm happy when i home for me is such a sacred concept that it's hard to leave it i don't know <laughs> um yeah yeah, I was beginning those, to say, like you say, ethical dilemmas as well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah there's a, it's really, uh, yeah, it's getting. I think that's bad. a problem. I know, yeah. you know, I don't want to open any of the wounds that I inflicted before, but everybody has a line somewhere, um, and it's. I think. For me, that line was in a different place than everybody else at that point. Or maybe it wasn't. Maybe there are others who are worried about some of the things that happen. And, um, it is ask good. me a question, it so is, I'm not sure is, where I'm going with it. It's difficult to say, you know, it's difficult to it's difficult to stand up and it is difficult to say things. So, you know, there, there are people, well, I myself have seen some seriously dodgy things and... You know, you think, well, you know, looking back now, probably should have said something and said, no, that that's not on. We shouldn't be doing it. But, you know, you you don't. And then a week or two weeks go by and months, two months go by and you kind of you haven't said anything and it, and it goes. But um, well, you've got a group of people yeah. who are desperate to be there, who are learning. You know, they've got their sort of elder generations held in high esteem. Hmm. Um, that's a, I you, you can't question those people. No, no. Mm -hmm. Especially when your confidence is lower as a new graduate. I think you yeah. kind of, you might disagree with some things, but you're, you know, you're having to put a roof over your head. You're having to earn a wage. You, you don't want to rock the boat sometimes. Like I've certainly seen 
things in in my previous work where I was like I'm majorly uncomfortable with that and I don't think that's ethical or why can't we have a discussion as a practice about our policy on x y or z Mm. but when you're a new grad and maybe especially when you're struggling maybe you don't have the energy to fight some of those battles as well right I don't even know if you had the if you have the tools to like I think ethics is a bit of an afterthought really isn't it um a lot of time yeah in 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 um in the degree course when actually maybe it should be asked with everything like can do this but should we i don't know i don't have all the answers but it seems it strikes me that we we don't invest an awful lot into that question like at the minute and forgive me but it's, it's it's 10 years since i've been heavily involved in all this but at the minute, it feels like if you can think of it, you can you can do it really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. And if that's your line, brilliant. But if for for others that might be uncomfortable, how do we resolve that? Again, I don't have the yeah, answers. Yeah. Mm. yeah, Matthew. Like obviously, um, some people may not know, but you obviously left the profession in what could be described as a bit of a dramatic fashion. There was a bit of a fallout, um, but you admit yourself, you were in a fairly low and dark place at the time. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened? Yeah, well, it's, it had started at college, you know, and I'd begun to think at college, all I'm doing here is learning lists of breed predispositions to all these really fancy problems. And just how to fix all of them. And, yeah, and it was this yeah. sort of growing sense that, yeah, something's, something's gone wrong here. In, these yeah. animals yeah. are inherently unhealthy, um, which is brilliant if you love doing complicated surgery and amazing medicine. But, but do, It's not natural. In, in nature, they don't have these kind of problems. <laughs> so something's gone yeah. a little bit yeah. wrong. And, that, and then I, after graduating, it kind of just got worse and worse. And I began to feel like, I have a veterinary degree, and everybody loves me for that. But I feel like an expert in how we've messed up the domestic species, basically. I'm, and how to fix them, but by a kind of sticking plaster approach rather than a more fundamental prevent the problem happening in the first place. Yeah, well, maybe. I don't know. At that point, I'm I'm thinking, um, are we actually helping? this situation so and then it this sort of massive existential question arose which is is there a conflict between individual animal health and population health so mm. with your with your baseline being how nature works and natural selection that's population health you know Nature is pretty ruthless yeah, yeah. with individuals. It works on population level. Um, we we don't, you know, the profession doesn't, and it's almost a sort of arrogance in that, isn't it? Like, well, we're humans; we can do a better job than nature can. And all this stuff is swirling around in my head, and and then I starting to research. Well, what did a bulldog look like a hundred years ago? When did the yeah, veterinary yeah. profession get involved with cattle fertility or cattle med- medicine at all? Um, starting to ask all these sort of philosophical questions about our role in the health of the modern domestic animal mm, population. Kind of enabling. 
Yeah. Yeah. Are we the champions of population health and welfare, or are we actually creating the solutions for people to make this worse? And I, I'm, <clears throat> I think everybody should answer that question for themselves. I'm not going to go around shouting what I think anymore. <laughs> um, but because you did quite publicly um, yeah. in the press. You, and then, you were quoted in the press. But that's, a, that's the kind of last resort. That was my dramatic cry for help because I, had, I couldn't get anywhere. I couldn't get anywhere. These, some of this debate has happened in the veterinary press and I'd watched it and everybody has a heated argument and then nothing happened. Yeah. Uh, and I'd been involved with cases that had really upset me, RSPCA cases going to court where there's an, another vet on the other side saying that um, emaciated calves that subsequently die is an unfortunate but just conclusion. And I can't see a way. I don't know how that's even possible to say that. It it died of starvation. Mm. How can you do that? You just, maybe the word is radicalized. I'm getting more and more angry um, and can't find an outlet. I tried to join the BVA welfare group and didn't even get a reply. I found all the paperwork the other day. Um didn't even get a reply i tried to join i tried to get out of clinical practice and join the welfare unit at the rvc um and that was going well until someone high up in the food chain uh sabotaged that because i hadn't finished a res residency earlier because i was so depressed at that point <laughs> um yeah, i don't yeah. know there's this kind of rule in academia if you haven't finished something that's it you've got no you've got no further chances so oh all these steps building building the pressure couldn't release couldn't release and then a journalist wants to talk to me um and i saw a way to say something and it wasn't the wisest way but i was at that point where i was just furious <laughs> yeah. um and so rest is history. Yeah. And I think um, having watched, you know, the, the program come out last week, New Lives in the Wild, um, it did stir up some negativity amongst vets on, on an online forum. Um, you know that yourself. And I think that for me, my understanding of it, I didn't realize when I, when I chatted to you guys, you know, about coming on the podcast that you'd written that article or, you know, that was your history or whatever. I wanted to talk to you about your lifestyle. So I was quite taken aback with some of the negativity. There were lots of people coming to your defense as well, but it was around that article in a, you know, a kind of a not very well regarded tabloid um, newspaper. And I think the crux <laughs> of why people got angry in the veterinary profession was they took it quite personally that what you were saying to me was about is the veterinary profession maybe complicit in some harmful practices or some dubious kind of ethical things that we were complicit because we're not addressing them at root source or we're complicit because we do facilitate you know certain welfare issues for example the one you you chose to talk about on the program was you know flat face extreme brachycephalic or flat face dogs we do um 
enable breeders to keep breeding them because we are the ones who are landed with the cesarean section at two in the morning and they go off and they have these puppies to sell and they breed that dog again. Now, I think where, where from my point of view, where people were getting annoyed or maybe taking it personally is they took it almost as a personal attack on them. And even I think the ones that are maybe struggling the most with those exact ethical issues that you or I um, and Karis have when we were in practice are the ones that are saying, you know, you're leveling all this, these accusations at me being complicit. Whereas I think, correct me if I'm wrong, you're talking about kind of shaking up the profession to do more in general, rather than individual vets are all contributing to the poor welfare of flat faced dogs, for example. Would that be a fair kind of it, yeah, summary? It, yeah, it would. Um, I think there, there was an awful lot of self-defense, wasn't there? Um, and yeah. I try. I I, I don't want to get into specifics anymore. I mean, I was really reluctant on the program last week to to get into specifics because if I say one species or one problem, there's a load of the vets in the profession will say, "Well, I don't deal with them, so it's nothing to do with me." And the ones who do will say, "Well, yeah. I don't do that, so it's nothing to do with me." And then the ones there's another group who probably know that they they are part of that problem, but have to yeah when well will attack you know get really indignant and defend themselves um yeah so i'm a vet i'm not i'm part of this massive profession and it um and it felt like i was part of whatever the veterinary profession has done so uh you know that the word vet meant something to me and the sum total of our influence meant something. And I wasn't able to say, well, it's nothing to do with me, mate. I felt bad for, yeah. for every impact we may have had. Um, <laughs> and, but it, it, I mean, that's so difficult, though, isn't it? A massive overhaul of what every vet saying, yeah. that's it, we're, we're, we're not doing cesarean on bulldogs, you know, anymore. Or that's, it's such a, a massive thing to do. And it, any of these issues is so difficult because if you're just an employee, the partners want to do it because if they don't do it, they're just going to go to the practice down the road and they're going to do it. And they, you know, and yeah. so that's all a massive mixture of it as well. Um, Look, but I think, it, yeah, it's fair enough that, you know, everyone's saying, well, well, I, you know, I don't do that. But, yeah, you kind of, we need to look at everyone as a whole and what your neighbour's doing and, uh, yeah. Well, I, I don't, don't know. know. I don't know. I, I, look, I don't have any answers. Um, but if there's still people out there who say, well, I, I refuse to listen to anything he says because he upset me 10 years ago. And that's probably part of the problem. <laughs> it's sort of yeah. immediate rush to self-defense before anything else. And I, you know, I get it. We, um, I get it, but that's really insecure. Se you're secure in what you're doing, then bring on the criticism. And that's kind of one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm learning and want to learn even more is I want to get better. So I can't do that if everybody tells me I'm brilliant and I'm doing the right thing. I want people to point out. It doesn't have to be aggressive Twitter pylon sort of stuff. Mm. And, it, you know, I, I I didn't write that article in the, in the paper, by the way. I 
um, it was ghost written and I had to authorize it. So I didn't write it. I wouldn't have written that if I'd have had a choice, but um, anyway, it was the wrong tone. It was too aggressive. It was not what mm. I wanted to do. Your regret, kind of authorizing it in the the uh, version that went out. Uh, I don't know the answer know, to that question. It's led, it's led to where we are, hasn't it? I mean, my choice was so, my my choice was well, the the journalist who wrote it read it to me over the phone. I wasn't allowed to see a physical copy, though I had. Um, it read over to the phone for me and then at the end of that to decide, yeah, you're going to go with it or not. And you I kind of, some of the points, they get lost. It's just being read to you over the phone. You can't, mm. you can't critique it as much as you can. And then they're not going to write, they're not going to publish it if it's not controversial enough. Um, and you were just was, down the rabbit hole and was so fed up and angry at that point that you felt yeah well, I've got burn to the do house something. down <laughs> yeah do it you know yeah, yeah fine you know whatever Stick it to <laughs> yeah um i can't get anywhere just do it and and i hope that starts a conversation because the, the conversations in the veterinary profess uh, veterinary press go nowhere so mm. maybe if i threaten the public image a conversation will happen, but it but it didn't. Yeah. It, it maybe it did, maybe it did a little bit, but I was my own sort of scapegoat, wasn't I? It yeah. was easy to say that guy he hasn't done small animal practice, so I'm going to ignore everything he says and start shouting at him. Yeah, and well, then one I, of the things that stood out for me when that you said at the time and, and since is that you preferred to commit professional suicide than actual suicide. <laughs> well, yeah, obviously. <laughs> it, yeah, it was a release valve, wasn't it? I mean, I, I, I almost consider myself lucky in that I found a way to blame the profession for how I felt rather than myself. You know, that big conflict mm -hmm. we were talking about earlier with the, I hate doing what everybody else loves me doing that's big where's that going to go that could go all sorts yeah. of different ways um and for me i found a way to blame the, the profession i found a way to hook on to this sort of unnatural selection and our role in that as a as a focus for my anger if i hadn't have been able to do that if i had have blamed myself mm. as many vets do for not liking the job that everybody thinks they should love and all their colleagues appear to be loving as well where would i be now mm. if anywhere yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. it's yeah. a it's a profound question yeah do you think there's an element of obviously we, there's a conflict isn't there between you know there's three people in the three beings in the consult room there's you there's the patient which is an animal that doesn't have a voice and then there's the owner but then mm -hmm. maybe there's a fourth element which is the practice partner or your boss who you know has a, a turnover and a, a profit margin to make because it is a business um, and i think all of those things coming together create a lot of conflict um do you think as a profession we need to be braver at standing up and speaking up to our clients about what they have normalized when it comes to keeping pets or raising livestock or you know doing things that we find as 
uh, as vets and as animal welfare experts dubious or concerning or you know a conflict of interest for our own personal ethics i think for me i do feel that sometimes we're almost a slave to not not offending people or yeah. not like rattling them too much yeah absolutely yeah. i mean we're obviously you know doing medicine and doing animal medicine we're very empathetic people anyway and you do you don't want to upset the owner and even you know people come in with horrifically obese animals but actually to say to their face your dog is way too fat disgusting you, you, yeah you can't that upsets them so you have to be a bit like oh well you know maybe you need to cut down on the treats and all oh, that's you know and you <laughs> he's a little bit all, yeah, yeah like all nicey nicey when actually you know you're feeding it too much and you're killing it by feeding it too much you know and yeah you you don't say that, you know. Well, I've never been that blunt, with, you know, with anybody. And and, and then other, you know, simple things. Yeah, like a little anything will go wrong, and they'll rush in. And to be able to say, look, you really, you you shouldn't, you don't need to be coming in. You know, you, yeah, it, it is all. It's all about. It's all about people. It's all dealing with people way before you get to deal with the animal. And that that's mm -hmm. where that's kind of where I was at the end. I was like. Um, Every farm I went on felt like a concentration camp. Um, and the, the best thing I could do is to shoot a lot of them. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting controversial. Yeah. God. Yeah, no, well, we're, talking, we, we're, we're, we're talking farms with 80% lameness and, um, yeah, and I mean, things no, like that. And, yeah. you know, they're sleeping on sandpaper and it's all building. Yeah. The pressure's building. The pressure's building. And that's what I want to say. My oath, I took an oath. God yeah. damn it. Yeah. I swore an oath. Yeah. And that it's much to more complicated. Yeah. And it's much more complicated than that. I get it. The world is what it is. People have got to make money. You've got to protect reputation if you want to make money. But I wasn't a partner at that stage. I was still believed that in, in animal welfare and, and I'm, literally thought we should be shooting most of the things i was seeing um but you can't say mm -hmm. that um i do you know what i feel yeah. like yeah i feel like um if people started putting you know i want to own a dolphin where are you going to put it well i'm going to put it in this paddling pool all right so we're going to start seeing pad uh, dolphins in paddling pools with uh, various skinned conditions and neurological conditions and stuff i, I feel like we wouldn't have the vet profession say, "Dude, you can't stop keeping dolphins in paddling pool. We're not getting in. We're not getting involved in that. Just stop it. Can't help you with that because it's ridiculous." Instead, what we'd have is like a decade later, experts in the diseases of dolphins in paddling pools, <laughs> and whole clinics dedicated yeah. to solving that problem. Not solving it, to managing that problem, and that I, that really upsets me. I even feel that that's how it would go. Uh, and it really upsets me yeah. that there would be some dolphins. That, it's a stupid analogy, really, isn't it? But that's where I feel we are. We're like, oh, they're there. Well, well, we've got to try and help to make it better for the dolphin. We're actually shoot the dolphin <laughs> and stop keeping them in paddling pools. <laughs> yeah, look, it's, it's an extreme analogy, but it's not um, a million miles away from some of the things that I saw as an exotic vet. And, and I think my turning point in clinical practice came when I tried to decide, okay, 
what's next? I've been six years in, you know, first opinion GP practice. I've had an interest in exotics, but do I specialize in exotics or do I kind of get out now because specialize in exotics, I'm going to be dealing with very ill animals, many of which I would say shouldn't be in captivity, or at mm-hmm. least the majority of people who keep them in captivity are doing so suboptimally, which has led to their yeah. you know, presentation on my, on my consultation table. So I think, you know, definitely I can identify with that, that actually there's a lot of things that just happen or maybe the veterinary profession deems kind of out of its control or remit that actually maybe we need to look at it being our remit if we're going to truly make an impact on animal welfare we need to be more vocal we need to be involved in the kind of legislation and we need to be um thinking more about just because you can does that mean you should um you know even when it comes to treatments and things so I totally agree with you. And we could talk, I think, for hours and hours and hours about the, this kind of ethics and things. And we could make friends and enemies. Um, but I think we're, we're running fairly short on time. Um, what would you guys say to any vets out there at the moment that are kind of struggling or going through those kind of points in their career where they feel imposter syndrome, they feel disillusioned, they feel hopeless, or they feel like, you know, they want to get out? Would you have any words of wisdom or advice for them at this point in time? You, you've got to find someone to talk to. Yeah. I mean, it's it's okay to feel like that. Yeah, it's, it's normal. Yeah, go on. And you it's don't fine. know, you know, the other vets in your practice where everyone seems like they're fine, some of them might feel the same and everyone covers it up. You just don't know. But um, that's the problem. Yeah. Who is it to talk to? You can't talk to anybody who's not a vet and who is not going to get the problem. No, I mean, we're, you know, That's our family problem. members are like, what? You know, yeah. what? I know it must be great. So it's so difficult talking to them. And, and it's not that you, you know, sometimes you can find a way and you don't have to leave the profession. You know, we're not, hopefully, you know, we've just said what we have really struggled with. But, you know, you can, it's not saying that it's it's awful for everybody to be a vet, you know. So um, I don't know, finding someone to talk to and figuring out what the problem is and then what you can do about that, whether that's changing slightly how you're working or just going part-time or changing the practice you work for um, or, you know, completely getting to, out. I, I you know, if, don't know. If you haven't got a sort of support network, yeah, you, you're in trouble. So this may sound silly, but if anybody really, really doesn't know where to turn to because they don't know that they're going to get heard properly, we can we can talk. When we're not anti the vet profession as much as it may yeah, seem. Yeah, we won't just be like, oh my God, cut <laughs> out, run. Um, no, well, yeah. are just aware that it's really, really isolating, particularly if you're not enjoying it. And um, yeah, and I don't want anybody else to feel that either. Yeah, I would give a big shout out to... Um, to vet life who helped me massively when I was at my lowest point um, and I went and booked a, a counseling session with with vet life and that completely reframed you know where I was from totally hopeless and thinking what do I do next like and that feeling of not wanting to almost disappoint everyone in my life who yeah. was championing my veterinary career as well you know that was a big pressure for me definitely yeah um yeah brilliant if those people can help um brilliant but if if there's nowhere else to turn <laughs> you can talk to the most hated man in the profession if you want <laughs> oh, <don't say> that. 
<laughs> well, look, we'll um, we'll wrap it up there, I think, on that clangor. <laughs> but um, what's, what's next, guys, for um, Beeview Farm? What's what's in the pipeline? What projects are you working on next? Oh, I've got to get this compost water heater working. <laughs> That's the next thing. Um, we'll be doubling the flock size of chickens in the spring, and then just doing what we do getting the kids to to school makes making sure they're happy <laughs> looking point, after ourselves yeah. um we yeah. are happy here we are we found peace um and that's that's that feels good yeah 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 good i'm glad to hear it um and there's a word there was word that you might be doing some courses when life goes back to normal and people can come visit maybe Ah, well, if anybody else is considering doing this in the same style or even just a little part of what we're doing, then it turns out we think we know what we're talking about now. <laughs> oh, maybe. <yeah. laughs> For four years, <laughs> we were blagging it, but... Um, but yeah, yeah, when when, um, when lockdown we're under ends. yeah, we're under lockdown restrictions, everybody is, but when, when that eases, we'll, um, um, yeah, definitely welcome tours to look at any part that any particular thing that people are interested in or just a general overview that's um yeah yeah fine well i might be i might be hitting you up for that myself um in a couple of years <laughs> when i decide to ditch london life yeah definitely <laughs> come on over cool well thanks guys it's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you um i hope you've enjoyed it as much as i have um but yeah really really good and thanks for being so open and honest i know parts of that are kind of difficult to to rake up and, and talk about again and obviously there's a bit of a, a bit of nerves in terms of like you know what we say and are we going to like kick up the, all that storm that happened before but mm. I really appreciate your honesty and openness uh thank yeah, you very thank much you. sean thank you all right thanks a lot and i'll speak to you soon yeah yes yeah all right then good luck Thanks for listening to another episode of Sean's Wildlife Podcast. If you're enjoying it, I'd like you to subscribe and hit like and maybe give me a rating or a review. Um, it all helps with getting out to a wider audience. And if you'd like to support any of the costs of the podcast on an ongoing basis, you can do so via a cast supporter in the show description. Thanks again. Mm -hmm.